welcome back to the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program's Race and Remembrance podcast series. This is your host, Alana Gomez. In this episode, we will be discussing the history of racial violence and terror in Florida during the 20th century. Just a quick content warning, we will be playing clips from interviews in which people detail the brutal attacks that their families and communities suffered. If you are uncomfortable hearing descriptions of potentially graphic violence, please see the episode description for timestamps to skip those parts. Just as a reminder, the transcript of this episode will be available in the show notes, along with other relevant links to the SPOP website, the JBA collection, and further learning resources. To begin with, we want to provide some context regarding the United States and racial terror in the 20th century before delving into community stories from Florida. The United States has a long history of racism that predates the establishment of the nation itself. Racial oppression is commonly associated with slavery, but in reality, inequality and injustice prevailed in the aftermath of abolition and until present day. Following the end of the Civil War in 1865, Congress legally abolished slavery and quote-unquote involuntary servitude with the 13th Amendment. Though a significant event in U.S. history, the abolition of slavery did not eliminate racial oppression in the U.S. In some ways, racial discrimination and violence increased as a response to this progress. In this audio clip, activist Margaret Block describes the opposition that Black community faced as a response to progress that came along with the civil rights movement. The federal government had a food program, but the local um, authorities canceled it yeah. as retaliation against yeah. people in the movement? Yeah, against okay. people trying to register to vote, mm-hmm. to vote or beyond, you know, just anything they were doing. For the latter half of the 19th century and throughout the 20th century, U.S. life continued to reflect racism as well as pervasive social, political, and economic inequalities. Often referred to as the Jim Crow era, this time period witnessed both de facto and de jure segregation as cultural norms and laws alike contributed to the subjugation of black Americans. Despite the abolition of slavery and the new federal laws protecting the rights of black Americans after the Civil War, racial oppression remained prominent throughout U.S. society. Throughout the 20th century, the prevalence of violence and terror against the black community remained high as white people fought to maintain their power and privilege. While a common misconception is that white Floridians did not play a major role in racial oppression, the truth is that racial terror was extremely prominent throughout Florida during this time. In fact, black Floridians suffered the highest per capita lynching rate in the United States between the end of Reconstruction and the end of World War II. No other state was even close. The Equal Justice Initiative defined lynchings as violent public acts of torture that were tolerated by public officials and designed to intimidate black victims. According to Dr. Paul Ortiz of the University of Florida, racial terror was designed to wipe out black economic and political progress during the Reconstruction period in an effort to continue white supremacy. While there were extreme incidents like the violent attacks that we will cover in this episode and the next, it is important to also note that people suffered under more general racial oppression as well, which had an equally devastating effect on the black communities in Florida and beyond. Here is a story from Mr. Roger King telling his experience with segregation as a child in High Springs, Florida. And we were horseplaying all the way. And so by the time I reached uh, Skeet's Corner, where the traffic light was, I was thirsty. It was a hot day also. And uh, I said, Harley, I'm going to go get me some water. He says, I wouldn't bother that water. If I were you, Bobby, don't bother that water. I said, man, I'm going to get me some water. I didn't see Skeet. Well, there was the water fountain there. It says white only. And uh, there was a 
old soda crate turned up so that those white children that couldn't reach the water fountain could stand up on that and they'd be able to reach. So I tipped up there quietly and was just getting ready to get me some water. And uh, I had my lips already too puffing. <laughs> and something lifted me up. That was old Skid Easterman. And she had me all up. She said, boy, you know you don't drink from this fountain. You know, you know that's why I don't know all I could do. I just, my little legs were dangling. And I was just telling her, I said, you put me down, you put me down. And uh, Ali and I, we took off running. Even the seemingly small details of this story highlight the nature of racism. The crate by the fountain meant that convenient access for young white children was put above even the basic human needs of black individuals. Just 13 miles away, in the city of Newberry, Florida, Miss V. Whitfield witnessed a very similar situation. In her interview, Miss Whitfield discusses her own experiences of being excluded on the basis of race. I experienced when I also was younger that the fountain that was at the city hall and municipal building, we were not allowed to drink from it. We were not allowed to go into the bathroom to, when I was going to school in the elementary school. And it was white and white on the door. Also, there was a, I'll never forget, this is really uh, stood, will always stay with a lot of us. There was a theater that was established, and when we started going to the theater, they shut it down because they didn't want us there. Mm-hmm. They let us know quickly right away that we was not welcome. Wow. So what they did, they closed it. Mm. So I came up in a lot of racism in Newberry during the time. So with most of the businesses, you had a few of those that they had to let you come to buy groceries. You know, they would somewhat be a little reasonable because they needed our money. But a lot of the businesses, we were not allowed. These sorts of encounters were all too common during the 20th century, and they continue to plague the black community to this day. These incidents represent an alternative form of racism, but contributed to the disenfranchisement of black citizens in Florida all the same. There were other, more extreme events that highlight the truly evil nature of racism as well. By 1950, there were 311 officially reported lynchings in Florida, with 46 of those people killed in Alachua County alone. Of course, there is always reason to suspect that the actual numbers are higher, as the justice system has historically failed marginalized communities. One such event occurred in the city of Newberry on August 18, 1916, when six people were brutally murdered in an especially violent and horrific demonstration of lynching. The conflict began when Boise Long was accused of stealing a hog from a white man, then fled from the police, leaving authorities to attack the community for allegedly helping Long escape. This massacre, known as the Newberry Six Lynchings, saw the killing of James Dennis, Bert Dennis, Mary Dennis, Andrew McHenry, Reverend Josh Baskin, and Stella Young. We have been fortunate enough to capture the living history of a surviving family member named Mr. Wire Dennis, who tells the story of this attack. Well, <clears throat> my granddaddy, mm-hmm. he wasn't lynched, but he was shot. Wasn't too long after that, this car came back out. And they yelled this remark, y'all can go down there and get that dead nigger. Mm. So when they went down there, my granddaddy was shot in the mouth. Yes, they figured, well, you stole his hog, and he said no, and they weren't going to take that. They just shot him in the mouth. In the meantime, that was that Saturday evening, uh-huh. and Saturday night when they did that lynching at Newberry. 
Saturday night was the lynching. Yes, after mm-hmm. getting shot, my granddaddy froze up during that afternoon. Mm-hmm. Then the group got together, and that's when the rest of the lynching took place. Like most lynchings in the United States, the Newberry Six attack would have been left off the historical record, if not for the work of the late Dr. Patricia Hilliard Nunn. In this interview, Dr. Hilliard Nunn recounts how she began researching the unjust circumstances of this event. I started researching that and had a memorial service, which was in, I believe it was 2002, in Newberry at the site of uh, what we call Lynch Hammock here. And people would talk about when you drive through there, you just kind of get an eerie feeling because these people were killed. And in that case, it was people who um, were uh, accused of stealing hogs, which was ridiculous because many of those people had their own farms and hogs and chickens and everything else. Police showed up at this man's house at 2 a.m. and he got shot. His friend got shot and the police officer died or the constable, they call him. He died, but he's a part of a prestigious white family, former plantation and slave owners. And uh, but if you kill a law enforcement officer, especially then you can hang it up. So people started rounding his family up. They couldn't find him. So they rounded up his family um at the end of the day to make a long very very long story short um um, they killed several members of his extended family um hung them from a tree two of them were women one was a pregnant woman a horrific injustice these occurrences were sadly all too common across the nation with other lynchings also based on fabricated evidence or simple subjectivity even among the crowd of whites who gathered to watch these murders, there was no mercy for these victims. Then all this, like Ku Klux Klan and this group went to get together, mm-hmm. and we're going to wipe out some niggas, is what they used the word mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Reverend Josh let them kill my daddy, granddaddy that Sunday, that afternoon, mm-hmm. then the other three or four people. And one of the ladies, was related to, I don't know which one of them wife it was, whatever, sister, one of the McHenry's or whatever that was pregnant. Mm-hmm. They killed, they hung her. And the, the white ladies was asking them, say, don't kill the lady that's pregnant. But that group didn't mean no different. Mm-hmm. They still hung her alone and had those bodies hanging like clothes on the line. This graphic scene illustrates how the word of one white person carried more weight than the lives of black people. Though slavery had officially ended in the U.S. in 1865, these accounts gave a different picture, one that contradicts the common notion that racism ended with emancipation. However, racial violence continues to the present day. Just this past week, we mourned the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. His death represents just one of many black lives lost to police brutality, a modern form of terror reminiscent of the lynchings of the past. We hope the history shared here helps provide context to today's Black Lives Matter movement and encourages you to keep fighting for justice in your own community. Tune in next week as we continue discussing the history of racial terror in 20th century Florida with a focus on the Rosewood Massacre and voter suppression. Until then, keep listening to the stories around you.